Uh, today we want to go into part two of the series that we started last week that I've titled Do the Hard Things. Um, and last week we kind of ended that message out <clears throat> talking about how promotion is often on the other side of doing the hard things. Uh, promotion is on the other side of doing that which is difficult, that which is challenging, that which stretches us. Um, and so if you want to be promoted in the spirit, if you want to go from uh, spiritual levels to, to new levels, uh, then, then, then you have to be willing to go through the hard things. Amen. So Jesus is our example and he did the hard things. And I'm not just talking about going to the cross. I think sometimes we underestimate how challenging it was for Jesus just to be born in the flesh. That's the most limited he's ever been. When you think of the God of all creation coming in the form of a baby and living in this life in the flesh for 30, 33 years, for the God who's never experienced any, any limitations. For him to have to walk from one place to the other. For him to have to eat. To get sleep. Right? But he did those hard things for you and I. So let's look at Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation because... I think it says it much simpler and uh, is easier for us to grasp what Paul is saying. And he says, <clears throat> you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave it was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. When it talks about Jesus giving up his divine privileges, it literally means that he emptied himself of divinity and, and all the glory that he has. It's, it's, it's he, he took that off and set it aside to humble himself and come as a man. Amen? Amen. Verse 8 says, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. So we see that principle here in verse 9, that through Jesus' willingness to do the hard things, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name which is above every name. I'm telling you, church, your next level of spiritual promotion is on the other side of your willingness to do the hard things. Amen. And not just do it like a spoiled kid who's been told to clean up their room. But do it with gladness and joy in your heart. Because you have to look through the hardship to what it's going to produce when you come out the other side of that thing. Amen? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that was set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. 
So do you see that? The writer of Hebrews is saying, there's a part that you and I have to play, pay, uh, play in this. We have to lay aside the sin. We have to lay aside the weight and the snare that easily, that easily trips us up. Yeah. That's our part in this. And that's not always easy. Because our, our, our flesh has these appetites for sin. And just because you get saved doesn't mean that the appetites go away. Just because you know it's not helpful to you doesn't mean that the appetites go away. And sometimes some of those appetites that our flesh likes, we actually like. Even though we know it's harmful to us. Friday night, Stacy said, I'm going to the store because they were leaving sun, Saturday morning to take Josiah back to, back to school. She said, I'm going to the store. I want to get some snacks for the trip and, you know, get him some stuff for his room for when he gets back. And she said, do you want anything? And in my head, I was saying, say no. <laughs> say no. But my stomach was saying, milk duds. <laughs> So I said, milk duds, get me a box of milk duds. And while she's gone, I'm, th I'm, I'm not going to eat them all. I'm, I'm going to behave. I'm just going to have a few. And then I'm going to save some for tomorrow. And I'm going to just eat them throughout the weekend. And she came back with the box of milk duds. I had four, Doc. And it was like, you can't stop at four. You can't stop at eight. Before you knew it, I, I ate them all. Not the little box. I had the big box. I had the big box. I ate them all. And I was saying, stop, stop. But they're so good. But this tastes so good. But it's going to be bad for you tomorrow. And so I woke up Saturday morning and it was, my stomach was all upset. I felt sluggish and it was just like, it's, it's the milk duds. I knew that wasn't going to be good for me. But I also knew, man, these things taste so good. And that's how we can be with our sin. Doesn't make us wicked people. Doesn't mean we don't love God. It just means that there's still an appetite in us for those things that we were engaged in before we were saved. Not everything. There's some things that I was engaged in before I was saved that I have zero appetite for. But there's others, man, that I have to still on a daily basis strive against. Yeah. I have to purposefully set that aside. I have to say no to those things. Mm -hmm. Now, let's put verse 1 of Hebrews 12 back up here. It says, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us do what? Run with endurance the race that is set before us. That word endurance, we also see it later on in this message. Uh, uh, it will be translated patience, but it means cheerful and hopeful endurance. So it's not just enough to run the race and complain about running the race the whole time. We need to be cheerful about it. We need to be hopeful about it, understanding that, man, me enduring and striving against sin and striving against the appetites of my flesh and doing the hard thing is going to produce more Christ-likeness in me. And so we can't look at the difficulty of the challenge. Or we can't look at, I really want milk duds, but I can't, and be mad about that. We have to look to what this is going to produce on the other side of our willingness to do the hard thing. We have to run our race with cheerful and hopeful endurance. Now, did you see in verse 2, it says that of Jesus that for the joy that was set before him. How is it joy to be limited when you've never known limitation? How is it joyful to strip off or to empty yourself of your divinity? How is it joyful to be nailed to the cross and die a criminal's death when you're the only perfect person to ever walk the planet? Because Jesus was looking through the hard thing, recognizing that on the other end of this, 
I will receive the name which is above every name. And not that it was about him, but that it was about you and I. Because by him doing this and receiving all authority, remember he said that to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. And receiving this name, which is above every single name, that meant for you and I, there was a hope for eternal salvation. So he's looking through the hard thing. He's looking through the difficulty. He's looking through that which is uncomfortable to what it's going to produce, not only for him, but also for you. And the writer of Hebrews says, consider him. Right? Consider him who endured hostility from sinners against himself, unless you become weary and discouraged in your soul. So when you start getting discouraged about doing the hard thing, think of Jesus. Right? And some of my difficult times in ministry where it's, it's painful and not just difficult because people you love, they, they turn on you or they stab you in the back. And I have to say, but, but, but Jesus went through this. They did this to Jesus. Who am I? They did this to Paul because I have to go to someone besides Jesus. Because in my flesh, I can say, yeah, but that's Jesus. Well, Paul went through it. Moses went through it. David went through it. Abraham, there's not a man that we read about in Scripture that God has exalted that hasn't gone through it. And so the, 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 the encouragement from the word is consider Jesus, at least you become weary and discouraged. And then he says this in verse four, remember this, you have not resisted against sin to the shedding of your blood. Right? You have not resisted, strive, you haven't stri- strived against sin to the point where you're hanging on the cross and shedding your blood. So let me continuously look to Jesus while I'm doing the hard things. Let me get strength from what he has done. Let me get encouragement from what he has done because Jesus has done the hard things. Amen? Amen. Now, just as he has done it, you and I are called to do it as well. We're to look at him as our example. And in James chapter one, verses two through through four, uh, James encourages us. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And we looked at this a little bit last week, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. Because it's like, how do you fall into various trials? How does that happen? Well, when you look that up, fall into, it means to stumble into something that is surrounding you. So when you look at it that way, oh, now it makes sense as how we can fall into various trials. Because temptation and evil and wickedness is all around us, everywhere that we look. And if we're not vigilant, if we're not watchful, if we're lazy, if we just take the time to to, to rest too much, we can find ourselves trapped in this wickedness and evil that is all around us because we live in an evil world. You don't have to go too far to find temptation. You don't have to go too far to find some kind of evil that you can get ensnared in, right? And when I say you don't have to go too far, you don't have to go outside of you. Your thoughts can lead you there. Because Jesus said, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery with her. That means I can be at home in a protected bubble and still find myself in the midst of a trial. Right? So that's how we can fall into these various temptations. But I like verse 3. It says, but know that the testing of your faith, it produces patience. Patience, once again, is cheerful and hopeful endurance. 
And it says, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That speaks to being mature and whole. Proverbs 24, 10, it says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Doesn't mean you don't have any when you fall in the trial. It just means you need to get stronger. Because when the trial comes, that is the day of adversity. And when you overcome, when you win, when you win that battle, you get stronger. When you lose that battle, you should learn from it. Why did I lose? Why did I fall this time? Why did I not overcome this time? What was different about this? What was different about me? Right? That's like something I learned over the last few months because I tried to pray the scripture over myself, over my family, over this church, and over our community every night. I don't do it every night. But that's my goal is every night to pray the scripture. I have scriptures in my phone and I just go through them and I pray them over all of us. Right? And one thing that I've noticed is that the nights when I don't do that, my dreams are different. If I go two or three days without doing that, my dreams are totally different. And I wake up having to battle those things that I saw in my dreams. But when I pray the scripture every night, I'm serious. Every single night that I pray the scripture, I sleep peacefully. I have prophetic dreams or I don't dream at all. so that's something that I'm learning. That's, that's, that's something that I am learning about these trials that are all around me. That's something that I'm learning. If I want to overcome in the day of adversity, I have to pray the scriptures over my life, my family, my church, my community before I go to bed. And it makes sense because the occult, while we're sleeping, they're up praying and shooting intentions at us. And casting spells. And if you think that stuff doesn't work, you're deceived. They can't curse us because we're blessed of the Lord. But they sure can torment us. They sure can oppress us. The, the enemy can come and give us a dream that starts to cause us to dabble into the things of our flesh. So they don't have to curse us. We bring ourselves outside of the covering of God. Are you following me this morning? I'm telling you, church, this life that we call Christianity is full of opportunities for us to joyfully do the hard things. But we've got to look to what we're going to become on the other side of the trial. We can't just focus on the trial that is in front of us. We can't be discouraged because we're going through hardship. We need to recognize that even Jesus had to go through it. Your favorite Bible character besides Jesus had to go through it. And you're special, but you ain't that special. Right? You're not so special that God has said, no, Bill, Bill, you're not going to have to deal with anything. And you don't want that. Because if you never have to exercise your spiritual muscles, they atrophy. You don't get stronger. You get stronger in the battle. You get stronger in testing your faith. Amen? So the purpose of the trial, which I call the hard thing, is to mature and perfect us in our faith. That's what it's for. So maybe we can start looking at the challenges. Maybe we can start to look at the hard thing a little bit differently. And say, if I go through this the right way, God's way, then I'm going to be a better man. I'm going to be a better woman. I'm going to be a better follower of Christ, a better disciple on the other end of this. That whole question of, if God's so good, why does he allow bad things to happen? Well, there's a lot of ways that we can answer that. But one way is because he wants you to overcome. I was listening to the testimony of a young man and, and when I say young man, I, I believe this guy was between 18 and 22. And I, actually, I'm sorry. I believe he was between 16 and 22. And he had cancer. And he's a believer. 
And they asked him about, you know, how do you like make sense of this? And he said, people think I'm crazy when I say this, but I, I, it, it's the truth. He said, I thank God that I've had to go through this because it's drawn me closer to him. And he says, I'll be honest, I'd rather not go through it. But since I'm going through it, I thank God for what it has produced in me. I don't want to go through it again, but I'm thankful for it. And I'm sitting there thinking like, man, what if we lived that way? The challenges we're having with our children, the challenges we're having in our marriage, the challenges we're having in our finances, the challenges we're having with our neighbor, our coworker, our boss, whatever it is, what if we start to look at them from the standpoint of this is an opportunity for me to draw closer to Christ and therefore become more Christ-like, therefore become stronger in my faith and my commitment to God. But no, we want easy street. Me included. When in reality, the trial is designed to mature you and perfect you in your faith. You want to be like Jesus, not Adam. This is what I mean. Adam was perfect, right? Adam was perfect, but he was innocently perfect. Jesus is tried perfection. Adam was innocent perfection. He'd never been tempted. He'd never had a trial. And so he was perfect. And then as soon as the trial came, what happened? What happened? He failed. And many of us want to be perfect without any trial. But what God's desire is for us to grow and mature and become come, come more Christ-likeness through the trial, right? When, when we look at this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says, Then God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. I can do that, Right? You've created this cocoon, this perfect environment. You've placed me in it and said, have fun discovering things and tend and keep it and cause it to expand and to grow. I can do that. And there's good stuff in here too. But then in verse 25, it says, this is after God has brought Adam to him. And it says, and they both, Adam or God had brought Eve to him. And it says, and they both were naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed because they're perfect, but they're innocent. They've not been tried. And so maybe, in fact, yes, I'll say it, their guards are down, especially Adam, that he's letting a snake have a conversation with his wife about disobeying God. He wasn't somewhere else in the garden. He was right there. The first trial, I don't know if it's the third day that they fell, but I know it was early on that they fell. The first trial they fall, they sin against God and his word. You and I have to be aware and vigilant. We have to know that the trial is coming so that when it starts, we can respond like Jesus. Amen? Amen? In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus puts it this way. He says, I will no longer talk with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. In case we're confused, the ruler of this world that he's talking about is Satan, the devil. He's coming but he has nothing in me. I've been through the trials. I've done the hard thing. And he can't find a way in. In fact, when he was tried, remember when Jesus is tempted in the desert? And it talks about when Satan left him, he says he left for a more opportune time. We read last week about how our enemy, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You think 
and, and, and Satan himself isn't battling anyone in here, but one of his minions is. All of us, we're dealing with it. And they're watching. They're looking for, for cracks. They're looking for opportunities. I believe they're trying things to see how you respond and how I respond to that. I believe one of the greatest weapons that the enemy uses against us is lies. Because that's part of his character. That's who he is. He's the father of it. That's his, I think that's the weapon that he knows how to use the most. And lies come as deception and all kind of other things. That's why we need to pray daily. Deliver me from deception. And Holy Spirit, help me to walk in the truth. So when you're getting two stories, Lord, help me to know the truth. Right? Reveal the truth to me. I'm not going to act until I know what the truth is. Right? Doesn't matter if it's your best friend saying one thing and a stranger telling you the other. Don't go with your best friend just because you've known them the longest. Guess what? They lie too. Are you hearing me this morning? The enemy had nothing in Jesus because he's tried perfection. And I know some of you are thinking, but that's Jesus. Well, then let's look at some examples of of normal people, people like you and I. Which, by the way, remember, Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. So when he's here on the earth, he's here as a man full of the Holy Spirit. Guess who that sounds like? You and I. So it wasn't that he's got this God-like power. He emptied himself of that. And in the earth, he's a man full of the Holy Spirit with his ear tuned to the Father. What he says, I'll say. What he does, I'll do. I will walk in perfect obedience to the Father. That's why he could say with the surety, the ruler of this world is coming for me, but he has nothing in me. Amen. Amen. There's a man in the Bible named David, greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. Most of us know who he is, done great exploits. He's known as a man of faith. He's one of the few people that has a dual anointing as a king, but also as a priest. Typically, when you read in the Old Testament, a person is either a king walking in a kingly anointing or a priestly anointing. But there's a few who have both. David is one. Melchizedek is another. Uh, Jesus himself is another that walked in both the anointing of a king and a priest. But how did David get to that place? Well, he came from humble beginnings and his father didn't think much of him. So when Samuel came to anoint the king and he says, bring your sons before me because God wants to raise up a king for himself from your sons, His father doesn't even invite David. I mean, talk about a father wound. That's how little my dad thought of me. Right? But he's the one because his heart is after God's heart. He spent a lot of time by himself with sheep in the wilderness. So I think he had a lot of opportunity to contemplate the things of God. So he gets anointed as king. He defeats Goliath. They start using him as a great warrior, leading uh, uh, some of the armies of, of Israel. And the women start to sing. Saul is slain his thousands. David slain his tens of thousands. Saul, who is the king of Israel at the time, he gets jealous and wants to kill him. Right? Because right? nothing bothers men more than, getting, than another man getting praise from women. Nothing bothers insecure men more than another man getting praise from women. So he wants to kill him. And so for 14 years, David is running from Saul. 14 years. He's hiding out in caves. When Saul is distressed with the distressing spirit, he comes and plays his harp so that the spirit leaves. As soon as the spirit leaves, Saul throws a spear at him, tries to nail him to the wall. It's like, God, like, why do you have me serving this maniac? But David behaved wisely. 
when he had an opportunity to slay Saul in the cave, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll not put my hands on God's anointed. Amen. Right? Every opportunity David had to do something bad or some kind, bring some kind of revenge upon Saul, he resisted. That's the way that he lived. And so let's pick this up in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse, verse 28 through 30. It says, thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. So in the midst of that trial, in the midst of doing the hard thing, what did David do? He trusted God and behaved wisely. And on the other side of that, he, became, he, he got his promotion. It says it, so his name became highly esteemed. Not just among the people, but also with God. Because God watched him behave wisely. God watched how David operated while tempted with the trial. God watched how David operated doing the hard thing. And because David behaved wisely, he became highly esteemed. Let's look at another example. There's a woman in the Bible named Ruth. Right? Her mother-in-law is a woman named Naomi who had a, a husband and two sons. The husband dies, then the two sons die, and, 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 and Naomi's just in a bad place, right? First of all, they leave Israel to go, uh, I think, to Moab uh, because of a famine, and they, they kind of make a life there. That's where her husband died and her sons died, and her sons, both of them were married. So Naomi decides, I, I'm just going to go back to Israel. She's in a bad place. She's in a really bad place because she's a, she's a, a widow and, and there's, there's just nothing. She's poor. She's a poor widow. And so she brings her daughter-in-laws and says, listen, go back to your father's house. There's no more sons in me. I'm too old to have kids. And even if I did, are you really going to wait around 18 years for, me, for my son to become old and then I can marry, you can marry him? Let's go back. So her one daughter immediately kissed her. Appreciate you, Naomi. God bless you. And she moves on back to her dad's house. But Ruth clings to her. She says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm covenant to you for life. And Naomi's like, listen, go. Get away from me. Because she's just in a bad place. Ruth is like, I'm not going. Wherever you go, I'm going to be there. Naomi is so frustrated by it. It says, the scripture says, she stopped talking to her. <laughs> right? She's just like, whatever. I'm not talking to you. I'm not saying a word to you. But Ruth is so good to her mother-in-law that she goes out into the field and she starts to glean so that they can get food so that they can eat. Because in the days of Israel, if you own a field and let's say there was corn in that, you could reap the harvest of the field, but you had to leave the corners undone. And if you dropped, if anything was dropped while you're harvesting that field, you couldn't bend down and pick it up. You left the corners unharvested and the food that you dropped or the crop that you dropped, you had to leave on the ground so that the poor could come and get that. That was how, that was how God provided for the less fortunate. Right? And so she goes out and she's picking that up. And, and, and long story short, they find out that there's a man who, the man who owns this field, his name is Boaz. And he's a relative, I believe a cousin of Naomi's husband who is deceased. And so he's in position to redeem them. And so through a long story, you, you really need to read it. Ruth, chap, Ruth is, a, is a great book and it's not super long. You should read this story. But in Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. 
And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. Now pay attention to what these women are saying. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, this is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Because she, Ruth, behaved appropriately during the hard times. She gave birth to a son who became the grandfather of King David. And more powerful than that, she became a part of the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because she was willing to do the hard thing. It would have been easy for her to leave Naomi and go remarry, go back to her father's house and find a different husband. But she said, your God is my God. Your people are my people. Where you go, I will go. I will not leave you. Nothing will separate you and me except for death. That's hard. We don't live like that anymore. Man, we have one disagreement with people and we cut them off forever. Now, don't hear me say you need to be someone's doormat. Some people you need to cut out of your life because they're super toxic. Right? No, I'm serious. Because they're super toxic. You need to cut those people out of your life. If they're starting to to, to mess with your your Christ-likeness. But don't let a disagreement Break up your relationship with people that you're coveted to. Be committed to one another. Love each other. Let's love each other enough so that we can have hard conversations and recover from that. Right? Right? That's one of the things. I'll, I'll just be honest with you. We'll sit in leadership meetings and we'll talk about stuff. And it's like, well, you know what? And, I'll, and the team will tell you, I say this all the time. I, I've never had to tell him no. I've never had to tell her no. And why does that matter? Well, because when you tell people no, you get to see what's really in their heart. Anyone who's ever been in any level of leadership, you will understand that people love you until you have to tell them no. Then you find out if they really love you. Then you find out if they really look to you as leader. There's some people I tell no, and I go from being Pastor Charles to Charles. I ain't been out of shape about it, right? If I ain't your pastor, don't call me pastor. I'm not hung up on that title, right? But that's how we live in the body of Christ now. We're not willing to do the hard thing to work it out, to be submitted to a leader. Well, I hear from God too. So didn't Miriam. So didn't Aaron. They start talking against the leadership and what happened? The Lord said, all three of y'all come, come out, come stand. And he says, if there is a prophet among you, I speak to him or her in dark sayings and dreams. But of my friend Moses, I speak to him face to face. And you weren't afraid to talk about him? Sometimes it's hard to submit to leadership, especially when you don't agree with them. But it's still better for you to do that. And I'm not saying this for selfish reasons. I'm saying this for all of us. Because listen, there's women in here who have a husband. I don't care what the world tells you. You are to submit to that man. There's kids in here who have parents. 
honor your father and your mother. All of us, well, most of us have bosses. That's what almost bankrupted me and my family is I couldn't submit to my boss because I know more than him. I should have his job. Lord said, okay, let me dry you up financially and humble you. Well, this guy ain't even saved. In fact, when I told him, hey, I'm moving back to Wisconsin to start a church, he said, man, just, just start a church here in Dallas. I'll come to your church. I'll tie to your church. It's like, bro, you don't understand calling. I can't just start a church. But before I left, the Lord had to humble me and correct me on the way that I looked at that man because he was an authority figure in my life. Amen? Amen. I know submission is a dirty word in America in 2022. But if you do the hard thing, submit to the authority in your life, you'll grow in Christ's likeness. You look different tomorrow than you do today. Some of us are sick and messed up because we just can't submit to authority. I I don't know why I'm going here other than I believe the Holy Spirit is leading me in this because this is not part of my intended message today. But we live in a culture that glorifies rebellious attitudes right? Glorifies rebellious attitudes. That's not the way of the kingdom. That might be the way of a democracy where your vote counts and if you don't like them, just vote them out. But we're citizens of the kingdom of God. There will never be a vote. So let's submit to and honor authority in our lives. Let's do the hard thing. Amen? Amen. Even Jesus did it. His parents, come with us. He says, did you not know I needed to be about my father's business? It's not your time. Come with us. That's at 12. We don't hear another thing about Jesus till he's 18. But we do know this. It says that day and for that time, those 18 years between, he grew and stature and favor with God and with men because he did the hard thing. Amen? Amen. Let me give you one more example and then we'll close. It's about Paul who after his conversion to Christianity from Judaism, he recognized everything that he believed and followed was wrong. He thought he was doing the work of God by dragging Christians Christians off to prison and persecuting Christians, right? But this is what Paul says years later in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. He said, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted as lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may obtain attain to the resurrection from the dead. For he says, everything that I used to count valuable, I now count as rubbish. I lay it all aside. I give it all up just to know Jesus. Are we at that point? To where if there's anything in our lives that the Lord says, give me that so you can get more of me, we're willing to give it up. I remember when I got saved, I was like, Lord, do what you want in my life. Just don't touch my money. 
I will tithe and I will give and I'll be generous, but just always let me have enough. And I sealed my fate in that. Because about five, six years later, I started going through this hardship financially, which was partly because of, once again, my rebellion against authority. But also God revealing to me, you have an idol. I remember one time laying on the floor praying and just saying, oh, God, you know, just give us some money so that I can be at peace. You know, I never missed a day at work my whole adult life. I've never had one day without a job. Glory to God. But the Lord said to me in that moment, you should be at peace whether you have a million dollars or you have nothing because you have me. Right? Your peace should not be determined based off of the size of your bank account. See, Paul understood that. Everything that I have in this life, I'm willing to give up for more of Jesus. That's hard. That's difficult. But that needs to be our heart. I'm not telling you to go out of here today, sell everything and become homeless to prove something. No. But if there's something the Lord is saying, Give that to me. We need to be willing to give it to him. We're in our finance class. And, well, she's not here now, but Melody was saying how everything that we have, we we should hold on to loosely. Right? Instead of with a tight grip, let's hold on to it loosely. And I I love that imagery, right? That, that, this God has given this to me, but I'm not gripping it like this. I, at any time, Lord, take it out of my hands. I'm holding it tight enough to be a good steward over it, but not so tight that you can't take it or that you can't tell me to redistribute it over here. Paul understood that. All I want is more of Jesus because I want to be conformed into his death. That's hard. So that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. For some of us, Jesus is not enough. I'm not casting stones at you. I'm just telling you. For some of us in our hearts, Jesus is not enough. And that's a problem. And we've got to get to the point where all I need is Jesus. You can't sing songs like what we sung today, honestly, if that's not our heart. Right? sometimes a hard thing is saying Lord you are enough and everything else that you give me is is just your blessing but if you take it all I'll still worship you I remember Pastor Gordon preaching one time and I was like that's crazy and he said to me he, or he said in his message he said I because he was going through a hard time after he finished up his, his NFL career. You know, his words, he, he, he wasn't super wise with his money and his NFL career is up and, and he's got a wife and kids and, and not enough money. And he's, he's going through that struggle. And he said he got to the point where he said to the Lord, God, if I'm homeless on the street, living in a cardboard box with roaches crawling all over me, He said, I'll pick up the roaches and I'll preach the gospel to them because you're all that I need. I was like, that's extreme. That's extreme. At least don't have the roaches crawling on me, Jesus. 
right? Give me something a little bit better than a cardboard box. But I understand that now. I'm serious. I thank God for his blessing that he's brought into my life. I thank God for the people that he's brought into my life. But the reality of the situation is none of those things, whether I have them or not, I'm determined to not let it impact my relationship with God. He's good. I've settled that in my mind and heart. Doesn't matter what happens with my life. Doesn't matter what happens with the lives of people that I love. God is good. He's good. How can you say he's good, but God is good? That's not a question. Let's talk about the next thing. God loves me. Well, but if he loves, he loves me. That's not a discussion. Let's talk about something else. But you're in this place. It doesn't, mean, doesn't matter. God is with me. He has said he'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. I'm standing on his word. That's not up for discussion. Next conversation. I'm committed to doing the hard things. And I'll be able to do the hard things. With him in my life and with my brothers and sisters in my life. And so we, as the people of God, have to determine in our heart now, I'll walk through it. Whatever it is, I'm going to walk through it in covenant with God and my brothers and sisters in Christ. Doesn't matter how bad life may get, I'm not giving up on God and those those members of the body of Christ. But 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 that can take you into some hard places. I'm called to do hard things. But those people can betray you. I I get it, but I'm called to do hard things. Amen. Father, we glorify you.